If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 467. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast you can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com, or just go look for at Brian McClanahan. It's the best way to find it. While you're at brianmcclanahan.com, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by, click, by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can buy a book plate for one of my books. Purchase one of my books. My latest is The Jeffersonian Tradition. You're going to want it. It's a Think Locally, Act Locally book. So is my Southern Scribblings. Really, so are all of my books. I mean, this is the theme that I've been pushing since I wrote my first book all the way back in 2009. And in fact, today's episode is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode. So lots of great ways to support the show. Also, McClanahan Academy, Learn True, T-R-U-E, Learn True History. Share it on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Do those things. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And... Send me some show requests. I mean, I do that as well. So I've got a lot of that this week, some show requests. Some people sent me a lot of material. So we're going to cover all that this week. But I want to start by saying, you know, think locally, act locally is something you can do. And really, it's painless. I mean, this is how you're going to turn things around in America. And I receive emails every now and then from people. I got one the other day from a listener who said, look, I never would have thought to go to a school board meeting. I never would have thought to go participate in local politics until I started listening to your program. Now, I've been doing this for almost six years, and it's been the theme of the podcast really since the beginning. I didn't start saying it right away, but the theme of all of my work has always been think locally, act locally. And I don't care who says it as long as it starts winning. And it's really amazing to me in the last few years how I've started to see a transformation in American conservatism when it comes to this idea. Now, as I've mentioned on this show, you can't be a Lincolnian nationalist and a Jeffersonian traditionalist at the same time. They just don't work. Uh, Lincolnian nationalism is the antithesis of Jeffersonianism. It's the antithesis of John Taylor of Caroline and Abel Upshur and St. George Tucker and Thomas Jefferson and John Tyler. And we could go down the list of all the people that really push this idea of local action, real federalism. That is the basis of the original Constitution. That said about the original Constitution, my next class comes out this week, if you're listening to this. So if you're at McClanahan Academy, you're going to know about it. It comes out this week, and it's based on originalism. In fact, the title of the class is The Originalist Papers. So you're going to want to get all the parts of that class, but if you, if you study these things enough, you'll find that what we see in America really is the distortion of American history by the nationalists. It's by the Lincolnian nationalists. They have distorted 
what America really was at the beginning, particularly when it comes to political structure. And that's something that thinking locally and acting locally tries to bring out. So when you go to that local school board meeting and you protest the introduction of critical race theory in your local school board, or some other stupid thing they're trying to do, or you start thinking about getting to know your state representatives or your county commissioners or your mayor or your city councilman. You get to know these people, and you try to influence them because, look, they represent you. And so they're going to listen to people that make noise. Unfortunately, most of what we see in American society is driven from the top down. And that causes problems because if we're looking at American society as a one-size-fits-all culture, well, that culture is corrupt. That culture is destructive from the top down. And so what we have to do is try to tell people, look, no, that doesn't represent us. In our area, we don't, we're not California. California can be California. We're not Massachusetts if you don't live in Massachusetts. Now, if you live in California, fine, you can say we're California and we're not Alabama, Right? So this is where the beauty of federalism comes into play. And we've seen it all throughout COVID. We've seen the states react differently. If you've lived in a bad state, you've got some really bad policies. And you've got some people that have really been uh, given some, some real painful mental situations. And, and I feel sorry for a lot of them. Of course, they brought it on themselves with the governments they elect. But regardless, there's people in those states that don't agree with those policies. So there's something you can do in America, and federalism allows for this. You can move. You can go to a state that better reflects your values and your views. And this happens all the time. One thing I'll say about that, though, is don't bring the other state with you. Leave it there, right? If you're going to move from California because you hate California, don't bring California where you go. You got to start living like the place you go to. I mean, if you're going to, you, you don't want to corrupt that culture. So there's actually two articles I want to focus on in this particular episode, and they're both short. Um, one of them I just saw this morning as I got ready to record. And apparently, uh, this was a speech that was given last night uh, by Ron Johnson, who was a senator from, United States Senator from Wisconsin. Uh, actually, he gave this speech on Saturday, excuse me. And uh, this is from The Hill, and the piece says, Senator Ron Johnson on Saturday urged his fellow Republicans to take back local government positions in order to take back our culture. Hallelujah. I mean, it's like Ron Johnson's been listening to this program. This is what I've been saying for years. If you want to change things, you have to run for local office. If you're going to try to do it politically. Or you start changing your house. You change your... your, uh, your your neighborhood, right? I mean, you get involved in your HOA and you change that. You change the culture of these things. You change that school. If you do this, then everything else becomes easy because people act the way that they're taught. And if they're taught the entire time some far-left stupidity, well, that's what they're going to act on when they get out into the general public. So this piece says, Johnson made the remarks in a speech to Wisconsin State GOP Convention where his presence was met with applause and chants of six more years. The senator bemoaned what he characterized as the Republican Party neglecting local offices in favor of federal positions. Again, I've been saying this for years. Why would you run for federal office? I know somebody that was running for a federal office, and I told him, don't run for state office because that is where we're going to make the greatest impact moving forward. 
The states have to take their powers back. And you need good people at the state level to do it. And we know this can happen. We know the feds are, are essentially impotent when it comes to resisting the states. They can't do it. They really can't do it. They're, we're going to talk about it this week what, they're going to, what they would resort to in this case. But all of the evidence is on the side of local action over the general government. It's all there. And so if you're a lawyer and you listen to this program, if you're a judge and you listen to this program, and I know they're out there, think about that when you're arguing cases. Think about that when you're deciding cases. Because that matters. So Johnson says, take back our school boards, our county boards, our city councils. We will take back our culture. We don't have to fear this anymore, Johnson said, according to the Times. He advocated trickle-up elections. Well, that's just another word for think locally, act locally. But it, but it is. I mean, so school boards, county boards, city councils. Yes, if you can control the local, you don't have to worry about what the center is doing. Because your local will be better. The Times reported that Johnson, who has not announced whether he will run for re-election in 2022, also used his address to take aim at Democratic politicians, criticizing them for their repeated calls for social change while also acknowledging that the U.S. is not perfect. I mean, some of the, some of the reporting here is just absolutely ridiculous. Okay, so uh, that's big news. He says it's not perfect. The leaders you of the left talk about fundamentally transforming the nation. Do you even like much less love something you want to fundamentally transform, Johnson asked the crowd. America's not perfect. We had that original sin from slavery, but we've made progress. We've continuously improved. That's not good enough for the left. Now, this idea of an original sin, I mean, this is, this is a conservative talking point. It's something that the, the conservative ink will do to try to deflect. Um, slavery is an institution as old as man. It's not an original sin to America. It's, it's part of humanity. And so certainly no one today would say that they're in, in favor of slavery. I mean, this is, this is where you get back to this idea of we having to continually say, well, I'm not, I'm not for slavery. Who is, right? Who is for slavery in 2021? Why do you have to keep bringing this up? I mean, it's, it's a pointless exercise, and it only plays into the hands of the left. Because even by conceding this point, you're giving them an opening. So don't even talk about it. We all know it's there. Nobody's going to say, I mean, the left, the kooks on the left are going to run around and say, well, you know what you are? And, and the neocons will do this too if you don't, if you don't uh, genuflect enough to Abraham Lincoln. But, I mean, at the end of the day, nobody's in favor of slavery. Nobody's in favor of reinstituting segregation except the left through critical race theory and other things. They're not, they're not really interested from, from the, the intellectual backing of it. They're not interested in doing these things. Nobody's interested in doing that. Our little democracy here, this marvel we call America, is but a blip in time. It's kind of a tiny, it's kind of an insignificant on that scale. But man, is it rare and is it ever precious, Johnson added. The Times noted that he appeared to be alluding to the 1997 film Contact, in which a group of scientists makes first contact with extraterrestrials. So it's my belief that it's our solemn duty, having been given this gift, something this rare, something this precious. It's our duty to make sure that it not only survives for our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, that it thrives, he added. So this didn't do enough to focus on this idea of taking back the local, because I don't know if Johnson is fundamentally committed to that. See, here's the thing. Conservative, establishment conservatives have realized that 
maybe they're not really going to control the center much anymore. I mean, it's going to be hard with demographics moving the way they are, with uh, the left seemingly poised to keep control of the House of Representatives for a long period of time. And we don't know that. But it seems like that's going to be the case. Uh, the Senate is going to be up you know, for grabs here and there. And we know that, if we look at the presidency, I mean, if we're just going to go to national popular vote, well, it's going to be very difficult for, for a conservative to win the executive branch. So what Johnson and other conservatives at the federal level are recognizing is that the local really does become important. This is something we've been saying for years. And it's amazing the shift that's taking place in this, that conservatives are now waking up to this after a very long period of time. And I want to focus then on a piece that was published at American Greatness uh, a few weeks back. It's entitled, Federalism is Key to Surviving a Divided Nation. Now, American Greatness is a confusing website in some ways because they run a lot of Claremont stuff, a lot of neoconservative stuff, but every now and then they publish something pretty good. And in this case, this piece is pretty good. Uh, now, there are problems with it, just like Ron Johnson's speech. You know, you got to have the obligatory reference to the original sin of slavery. I mean, again, like somebody's ever going to bring that back. I mean, this is just stupid. But this piece is too nationalistic this piece on federalism, but it's getting there, right? I mean, we're getting there. I remember back in the 90s, and I've told this story before, how I was talking with Clyde Wilson and another person, and this is in 19, I don't know, 98 or so, 1998, I think. And I made the remark that what we need again is nullification. Now, by the way, another group that I really think does good work is the 10th Amendment Center. I think they just celebrated their 15th anniversary. So, I mean, that's an amazing milestone for them. And, uh, I mean, support that organization because they really go out of their way to, to, make, uh, to, to help state representatives come up with ideas and legislation that can uh, push a Tenth Amendment agenda, which is essentially what Ron Johnson is talking about. So support the Tenth, TenthAmendmentCenter.com. It's a great website. Michael Bolden is uh, dedicated. I mean, this man is dedicated to what he does. And so if you're not looking at 10th Amendment Center, you're not, you're not doing the right things, right? I mean, so that's, that's a great website. And, uh, you know, but this is 1998. And I made a point of saying, well, we need nullification. And I remember the other individual said, no, nah, that, that never works. And Clyde Wilson looked at him and said, it's always worked. Nullification has always worked. Always. There's never been a time in American history when it didn't work. Now, I mean, if you're going to measure it as, well, uh, you know, the states actually uh, blocked a federal mandate. Um, that hasn't happened necessarily. But what's happened is it's raised awareness. And so, for example, if you look at the Alien Sedition Acts, right? Virginia, Kentucky nullify those acts within their borders. Well, they're eventually, Jefferson wins the 1800 election presidency and the Republicans sweep to power because of the opposition of those laws. And then, of course, they get rid of them. So it raised awareness. If you look at the tariff, South Carolina nullified. Well, the tariff was reduced and then South Carolina nullified the force bill and adjourned. Right. So this thing works. The other thing I will say about all of this is you can't just rely on the state legislatures. You got to look at conventions. And I've said this Many times, conventions are the way forward because it's the voice of the people. Conventions are how the Constitution was ratified. 
You can change the Constitution. You can abolish the Constitution with conventions. So the conventions are the way forward, and states need to look at these things, not just through state legislative action, but through conventions to try to affect change at the state level. So again, this particular piece, uh, American Greatness, it's written by uh, Max Morton, published on June 13th, so it's a couple of weeks old now. But he says, we live in a divided nation. Our politics have become not just polarized, but toxic. For a country founded on the principles of individual liberty, democratic choice and representative government, and Republican protection of natural rights, America has seemingly lost its way. Now, uh, politics are polarizing. Look, why have I said, if you go back and look at this show, Americans are angry because we have one-size-fits-all positions that don't mesh with American society. I've said it for years. American politics have devolved into a zero-sum game, power struggle between two wings of the same establishment, with the prize being the privilege of exploiting the American working class. We are a long way, both figuratively and literally, from the raging fires of liberty that opposed the Crown Stamp Act in 1765. I agree with, I mean, that first paragraph is very good. I agree with all of this. We are a long way from that. Like all empires, America's decline or transformation, in the words of our 44th president, was the result of poor decisions by both elected leaders and the citizens who elected them. Corruption on the part of a rent-seeking elite and apathy on the part of the citizens have delivered us to our present situation. Although it is important to understand the mistakes that we made along the road to our failing empire, the real question we should be asking now is what are we to do about our current predicament? In David Reboy's essay in the Claremont Institute's The American Mind, he discusses the importance of ending traditional America's favorite pastime of arguing the same ground with the political opposition over and over again, as if minds are not already made up and just one more pithy tweet or witty meme would finally produce a tidal wave of political defections. Instead, he states, we should consider the work we must do in order to salvage some form of Republican society that appreciates and protects the founding principles of America's charter and our way of life. Now, here's where he shades a little too much into the Claremont stuff, right? It's Claremont Institute. Uh, we, we have this great essay from the Claremont Institute. You see, the Claremont people are going to push Lincolnian nationalism at a local level. It doesn't work. Right? It just it won't work. Once you get into Lincoln, you're opening the field to the other side. And, of course, what they're doing is saying it's the Lincolnian interpretation of the Declaration, which is entirely incorrect. Entirely incorrect. This is an issue that cannot get enough attention. It is fruitless to continue arguing the same tired left-right arguments, owning the libs on Twitter, relentlessly calling out the hypocrisy of our political opponents, and focusing our time and attention on outrageous content may be entertaining, but it won't save us from the oppression and serfdom of the authoritarian oligarchy that is presently transforming America. Again, I agree with this 100%. It's fun to go on Twitter. It's entertaining, as he says. It's fun to go on Twitter and poke fun at the left make fun of them, show their hypocrisy, do all those things. These are fun things. But if we're actually going to start doing something real, this is where thinking locally and acting locally comes into play. You have to do these things at home. And it takes work, right? This is not easy. I mean, getting out and getting involved is not easy. It's painless in that, you know, you're, you're not going to... It doesn't require as much money. I did a whole episode on what you can do to win a school board and how you do it. It's, it's about networking. But 
in so many ways, it's about hustling. And um, it, it does, does take work, but it's not painful to do it. And in fact, you could say it's rewarding. As an example, last week, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives published proposed rules to restrict ownership of AR pistols, which tens of millions of Americans legally own and use for self-defense and sporting purposes. The catalyst for this new classification restriction under the National Firearms Act of 1934 was the Biden regime's executive order on implementing greater gun control in America under the guise of reducing gun violence. So first of all, the National Firearms Act of 1934 is completely unconstitutional. I'm going to get into that this week. Right? Not that law specifically, but I'm going to talk about this. And I've done gun control before, but it was asked of me to do another episode on it in light of Biden's recent stupid comments. The conservative commentary's response has been loudly to point out that this will have little or no effect on the effort to quell gun violence. Really? Does anyone honestly believe the regime's interest in banning tens of millions of legally owned firearms and potentially making millions of law-abiding citizens felons overnight is for the purpose of reducing gun violence? This has nothing to do with preventing gun violence and everything to do with disarming American citizens, a longtime major plank of the Democratic Party, and an essential step towards authoritarian rule for every dictator in modern history. When we give credibility to a lie by arguing against it, as if we were a sincere assertion, we are diminishing our brand and reinforcing the regime's misrepresentations. This is exactly what I've said about the genuflecting to the left on the issue of slavery or race. If you give credibility to the stupidity that they say by saying, well, you know, we had original sin. Don't even say it. Don't even say it. It's not worth your time. It's not worth your time. Ignore them. Ignore their stupid comments. This is one thing Trump was able to do in ways, and DeSantis is doing it now. The way they dealt with the media and calling out their stupidity when they did it or just ignoring their stupidity was great. And the media couldn't stand it, which is why they had to get rid of Trump. I mean, they could not stand it. Instead of wasting time and bandwidth on the regime's specious gun violence argument, why not concern ourselves with what we can do to thwart this and future efforts to restrict our constitutional rights? First of all, it's not a constitutional right. (laughs) It's not a constitutional right. Now, federal gun control is unconstitutional. So for the United States government to ban firearms is unconstitutional. They can tell you you have to have them because they can arm the militia. I'll get into that this week. But it's an illegal law and therefore should be not enforced at all. Why not focus on reforming the 1934 National Firearms Act to remove arbitrary restrictions on firearms and accessories that give the tyrant an entry to confiscation? How about this? Why not just nullify it? Why not just nullify the 1934 National Firearms Act at the state level? This act is null and void in this state. We're not going to follow it. And anyone that does, and this is what Missouri is essentially doing, anyone that does is going to get arrested. Any federal agent trying to enforce a law that is completely unconstitutional is breaking the law. It is not enough to attempt to conserve the last shards of our constitutional rights. We must instead focus on advancing our cause of liberty. Again, I agree. One of the difficulties with human nature is our tendency to remain frozen in a familiar construct. Humans are essentially conservative. I mean, look, I'm, this guy—he—he's not saying anything that is earth-shattering here. But these are these are things that you know Patrick Henry said, Thomas Jefferson said it in the Declaration. 
Right now, many Americans are still living in a construct that is no longer germane to the present. They have failed to detect the significant changes in our society's institutions. The hard reality is we are living in a post-truth and post-justice world where our past ideas of freedom, individual liberty, and equal justice are simply no longer valid. The expectation that debate matters in a post-truth society inevitably leads to disappointment when no one cares about your truth. The idea that someone will save us from tyranny as long as we send money to a political party and cast our vote for the right candidate is obsolete. If we are to be saved, it is up to us to be the cavalry. Again, 100% true. Think locally, act locally. Sending money to somebody that's running for office is not going to do anything. You've got to do it at the local level. Traditional Americans can only be free if they create the conditions for their freedom. In order to accomplish this, they must remove or nullify the power of any faction opposed to that freedom. In this case, the oligarchy and their authoritarian-minded supporters are that faction. They wish to impose their design of a managed society onto traditional America, a design that does away with freedom, individual liberty, sovereign nation-states, and equal justice under the law. It is up to us, traditional Americans, to prevent that from happening. We must act to save ourselves. But what can we do? First, stop the tit-for-tat debate, debate theater. Second, focus on the solution. So, I like that he's calling it... Tra- Look, I've called myself an American traditionalist for years. People have asked me what my political leanings are. Are you a libertarian? Are you a paleo-conservative? I mean, people would say that I'm, I'm that or this. I mean, they've done it before. Paleo-libertarian, whatever it is. I've always called myself an American traditionalist. Simply that. I mean, that's what that means. Federalism as a solution. Federalism as a solution. I like this. America wasn't created on the Obamacare timeline of modern governmental action. From the beginnings of the revolution in 1765 all the way through the ratification of the Bill of Rights in 1791, America's founders worked to create a union of states under a central federal government. It took 36 years of hard work, thoughtful debate, and courageous action to develop and implement a system of enumerated powers, checks and balances, and respect for the citizens' individual rights. The founders were constantly concerned about government's trend toward tyranny, and they sought tangible methods of ensuring America would be secure from that threat. The result of their hard work was the Republican concept of federalism. Now, federalism, you could look at, if you you go back and read Jack Green about American constitutionalism, essentially the imperial framework was already federal. This is what the founding generation was arguing, essentially, that the central authority in parliament could control trade and defense, but then everything else was left to the states. They already conceptualized the idea of federalism long before uh, we had the Constitution written. Of course, they used it in the Articles of Confederation. Confederation is the same thing as federation. They had already known other examples of this when it comes to Rome and Greece, but more importantly, Greece. They talked about Rome as the empire more than anything else, but Greece in particular, they looked at confederations, and what the failings of those confederations, they sought to gain lessons from that and what they would not repeat in a modern situation. Switzerland, of course, they talked about, and some other Central European uh, confederations. Federalism is a compound form of government that combines a central government with regional governments in a single political system. Both the central and regional governments have the power to make laws, and they possess a certain level of autonomy from each other. This structure, designed by our founders, is the existing constitutional key to the solution of our divided nation. That's a little bit too simplistic. A little bit too simplistic of a definition of it. Because in our system, the central authority only has the powers that are granted by the states. 
by the people of the states, if you want to get more technical, but by the states. And so, um, yes, they do operate independently, a certain level of autonomy. The states have a lot of autonomy that the federal government does not have. No nation. Of course, you can't have a federal system and have a nation at the same time. This is where I think uh, he is a little confused about terminology. Mr. Morton's confused about terminology. So he says, No nation, divided as we currently are, can be governed effectively by a central government that does not represent the entirety of the people. One only needs to read and listen to the proclamations of the current regime in Washington, D.C. to know that it represents much less than the entirety of of the citizenry. One only needs to observe the actions of the federal bureaucracy against a large segment of its citizens and labeling them extremists and threats to the regime's version of democracy to understand that the days of a united republic are over. We never really had a united republic. We always had a federal republic. We had a federal republic from the beginning. The reason incarceration of political prisoners is a tool of intimidation against political opposition is a disgrace that the current regime boasts of a manner more apt of a third world caudillo. Government derives its legitimacy from the consent of the governed. A government which treats its citizens as the enemy can soon expect that consent to be withdrawn. The regime in Washington, D.C. cannot effectively lead America. Neither can it rule by the heel of the boot. Its fantastical ideas of doing so will only lead to a civil unrest of massive proportions and potentially to the dissolution of the republic. So instead of waiting for this train wreck of government malpractice to ruin America, perhaps it's time to decentralize our system of government and rely on the concept of federalism to maintain our union until a time when we are less divided. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, if we're ever less divided. Look, we need to decentralize now. And we can do it through state action. That's the thing. We can do it through state action. And I think it's important. an important point to make here is that he's saying we can save the union by decentralization. Nullification has always been a unionist position. Save the union for the benefits of the union, which would be defense, for example. Real defense, not imperialism, but real defense if we are attacked. Or for a free trade zone between states. This is a good thing. I want to be able to trade in different states and not have to pay tariffs because I live in another state. I mean, this is a good thing. Free travel, these kind of things. This stuff is good. It's beneficial. But what's not good is when you try to enforce your will and your culture and your society on other people that don't want it. It should not matter to a Californian what a Texan does in Texas, just as there's no benefit to Texans to impose their way of life on the Californians. It's almost like he's been listening to this show. Likewise, a regime in Washington, D.C. composed of bureaucrats whose belief system and way of life do not represent that of the majority or even a plurality of Americans does not have the moral authority to impose this version of America onto those who see that version as anathema to their way of life. One-size-fits-all government and culture has never been workable in a divided nation and eventually produces rebellion. This is particularly true in America, a country with a proud history of rebellion. People are not going to submit to a way of life they do not believe in. I'm not so certain, right? I mean, I think the COVID thing has shown that Americans are willing to do just about anything to, to whatever the government tells them. They're willing to do that now. And I think that's pretty clear. But... I think Americans are waking up because of it. They've realized that the government is going to lie a lot, and that doesn't really know what it's doing, and so they're causing tremendous pain and suffering because of it. In practice, federalism requires state governors to assert their existing constitutional role to govern and protect their constituencies while heavily filtering the actions of the federal government within their state. Decentralizing, reducing the influence of the D.C. regime can protect the rights of red state citizens while preserving the structure and efficacy of a 
representative government in a constitutional republic, a federal republic. So he gets these terms. He's he's getting there, right? It's like he just doesn't understand everything yet. Doesn't get it all yet. That's okay because this is a start. This is one of the best essays I've ever read at American Greatness that gets into this stuff. And this is someone who's kind of shades towards neoconism, right? I mean, the Claremont people, they all shade that way. You can't have, you can't have neocons. I mean, well, Paul Gottfried would disagree with me, but the neocons would not be around without Leo Strauss and the Straussians. Um, the Straussians are certainly the intellectual muscle behind neoconservatives. So we'll say Straussians. You can't have the Claremont without the Straussians. And the Straussians, of course, are the basis of Harry Jaffa and the Lincolnian uh, nationalist stupidity. Let these states live as they may and assume the bulk of the governing mission. The states should focus inward on governing their people. The federal government, within the powers enumerated in the Constitution, can focus outward on the governing responsibilities external to the states. Common defense, diplomacy, national infrastructure, and commerce. Now see here's national infrastructure. What is that? Right? There, there's never been an amendment to the Constitution that allows for these things. So if we want to do that, if we think that's a good idea, well, let's amend the Constitution then to make it happen. But otherwise, let's just not act like this is something the general government was charged to do. It wasn't. Preserving the Union. An authoritarian oligarchy doesn't care about preserving a union of states or whether traditional America precipitates in, a, in its democracy. The oligarchy only cares about removing barriers to its business interests and preventing traditional America from getting in the way of its wealth and power. In their model, everyone does as they're told, while national borders and sovereignty are quaint relics abandoned for the sake of progress, profits, and cheap labor. Traditional Americans should fight to preserve this union while also preventing the obliteration of their way of life. That's a fine line to walk, but it's not an impossible one. Consider the idea of preserving the union as, a, as maintaining a bridge to America as it was intended. While we are a divided nation, decentralizing control via federalism empowers states to govern their citizens in a manner that protects and enables their chosen way of life. It maintains our stake in the Union while preserving our liberty. The Union is the bridge to facilitate more effective participation of a centralized government if and when the conditions of national unity reemerge. Well, see, I mean, you're already thinking, this is making this too complicated. Look, the United States was always intended to be a federal republic where the states had tremendous leeway. I mean, if you go back and look at Tench Cox and his Freeman essays, if you've taken my originalist papers classes at McLean Academy, I went through these, you look at what he argued the states could do and what the central government could do, and you see the drastically different roles for each. Madison said as much. Even Hamilton said as much. I mean, and, and there's a whole bunch of other people, of course, in that particular series of classes. you got to get those classes. If you've gotten them, this would all seem like old hat. And it would, you would see that he's a little clunky in how he's uh, trying to get to the end here. He just doesn't really get it all the way. Individual states are free to experience the rewards or consequences of their policies, which also serves as an, an objective measure to the respective e efficacy and influences others to likewise adopt or shun them. Either way, there is freedom of choice for Americans to live the way they choose without a Washington establishment attempting to impose its one-size-fits-all will on the unwilling. Again, I mean, it's almost like he's been reading or listening to my podcast. Federalism necessarily defeats the oligarchy's consolidation of power, at the same time prevents the premature dissolution of the sovereign nation-state that is America. See, there, this is where he just doesn't get it. There's no sovereign nation-state of America. We don't live in the United States. 
We live in a federal republic. It's always been this way. So, see, a little confused here. Confused with some terms, understanding some things. He really doesn't get it. He has a military background, I know that. Um, He just doesn't get it about what America, the history of the United States, or these United States, I should actually say. The ideals that sparked the Declaration of Independence and subsequent armed rebellion from the crown were built upon individual liberty. Well, uh, there's no ideas there. It was the preservation of the rights of Englishmen, which had been codified for hundreds of years by that point. Our founders chose freedom over subservience, democracy over monarchy, and representative government over a managed society. We have lived by their sacrifices for 256 years. Now it is uh, for Americans to decide whether we will continue as citizens of a republic or as subjects under the rule of a wealthy, technocratic elite. Our founders gave us federalism to protect us from the tyranny of a few. Traditional Americans should embrace it as a solution to preserve our liberty and our way of life in this deeply divided nation. Well, we don't have a nation, number one. Never really have. Um, And we've always had a federal republic. It's just time to reawaken these ideas. Traditional American traditionalists, I do like that, rather than conservatives or libertarians. I mean, traditionalists is a better term, and I've always thought it was. But you've got two people now, Ron Johnson and uh, Max Morton. Again, Max Morton, let me go down to Max Morton's biography. Uh, Max Morton is a retired U.S. Marine Corps lieutenant colonel, former CIA paramilitary operations officer, and a veteran of multiple armed conflicts, revolutions, and contingency operations. Now, that would make me a little suspicious of Max Morton and what he's trying to do here. But um, regardless, uh, Max Morton certainly is on the right path in understanding that decentralization can work. Uh, It has to work um, because this is the original Federal Republic. So, thinking locally, acting locally is the way forward. It always has been. Get involved in those local school boards. Get involved in those local elections. Get involved in those things. 100 people at a courthouse in your town is more important than 100 people at the Capitol in in Washington, D.C. It's going to mean more. It always will mean more, and you can affect a lot more change. And the left knows this, too. It's why George Soros is dumping millions of dollars into uh, local activism, because that is how you change things from the bottom up. Thinking local, it's it's why the progressives did it back in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. It's how we have to do it now. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.